Hello. Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times. Hello. And we have a billionaire-heavy episode this week. We're going to talk about Elon Musk, who had his $50 billion pay package rescinded by the Chancellor of Delaware. We are going to talk about 23andMe, which was a hugely successful company before it became a hugely unsuccessful company. We're going to ask what happened there. We are going to talk about Sotheby's, which is a place where rich people hang out buying and selling art and what they just announced this week. We have a Slate Plus segment on The Messenger, which was another piece of billionaire whimsy where a bunch of cash got incinerated in the service of not entirely obvious what. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Emily. Felix. You have been reading one of the most fun bits of long-form narrative current affairs writing I can remember reading in a while in the form of Kathleen McCormick's judgment in the case of Elon's pay package is what, like 200 pages long? But it's, it reads like a rollicking read. It's, it's very easy to read and it's super informative. Yes, this is a ruling that came down this week from the Delaware Court of Chancery. Um, this is the business-focused court in Delaware that Elon Musk has had dust-ups with before. And this opinion from Kathleen McCormick, who's the court's chancellor. She's like the top dog in that court. Correct. Is amazing. The first line, I'll just read it to you. Was the richest person in the world overpaid? That's the first question. Great lead. Good job. <laughs> Good job, Kathleen. We respect it. It's not smart brevity like we write at Axios, but it's delicious. She goes on to like, you know, footnote Star Trek on the first page. She footnotes Star Trek and Henry V. <laughs> so good job. Once once more into the breach we go with Elon Musk, she basically says. And at issue in the case, this plaintiff, who only held, I believe it's nine shares of Tesla stock, sued the company and said Elon Musk's pay package issued in 2018 was excessive and it should be rescinded. It should be overturned. And this they, they took the case. The question of whether or not the pay was excessive, she kind of, I mean, she agrees, but that's not really the crux of this 201-page opinion. She kind of dials into a lot of very detailed and in-the-weeds aspects of Delaware law, but basically to find that because Elon Musk has control over his company, he is a conflicted controller. And when he was entering in negotiations with his board of directors over pay, it was basically a farce um, because he controlled the board of directors. Yeah, they, they weren't really negotiations. And the board even admits to that in their testimony. They're like, we weren't really 
adversaries. You know, it was very, they, they agreed there wasn't a real negotiation going on. Elon Musk basically went to them and said, this is how I want to be paid. And they were like, all right, cool. And they hired, you know, they hired consultants to come in, but the consultants didn't do normal consultant things. You know, typically they'll come in and do like a benchmarking analysis and look at what CEOs at other companies are making and be like, okay, you know, your guys' pay is in line with these guys' pay and these industries. And this is when they want to do a package like this, this is how they structure it. This is how you should do it. There wasn't anything like that, partly because (laughs) the pay package that Elon Musk wanted was 33 times larger than the closest comparison pay package. And you know what the closest comparison pay package was? Elon's previous pay package. (laughs) It was his last pay package before that. So, I mean... Okay, like they didn't do the benchmarking. The the board was completely in his pocket. So the idea that, you know, this was some kind of real negotiation was a farce. And she really lays it out so well in the 200-page opinion. It's kind of like beautiful to behold. <laughs> and yet even that is not the reason why she rescinded the pay package. She actually comes out and says like, you know, the negotiation can be a first, but, mm-hmm. you know, Delaware is a very business-friendly state, and we basically allow companies to have friendly negotiations with even controlling CEOs, just so long as you have a fully informed shareholder vote and the shareholders who are not you know, involved in the negotiation sign off on it. All they needed to do was fully inform the shareholders about what went into this negotiation. And they informed the shareholders about the metrics, about like, you know, the market cap needs to go up this much in order for him to get paid that much. But they didn't inform the shareholders about all of the conflicts and the way in which the chair of the board had made like 200 and some million dollars on Tesla options and, you know, much more than she'd made in all of her other jobs combined and all of this kind of stuff that like, if they'd only just been a little bit more transparent in their proxy statement, he probably would have got away with it. She, you know, she sets up the argument, though, by talking about the conflicts, because uh, she she basically just outlines a case for the fact that uh, no one was really negotiating on Tesla's behalf against Elon. And this is, you know, at the very top of the decision, she talks about the, the relationships that Elon has with the people who are on the working group that included uh, management members. And there's this sort of astonishing line where she talks about the fact that the general counsel, Todd Marin, was one of the working group members. Uh, and he his admiration from Musk was so high that he teared up during the deposition just talking about Musk. And to give you an idea of like that, you know, what Musk world looks like, this guy's previous job before he became deputy general counsel of Tesla was Elon Musk's divorce attorney. Incredible. This is like a company that's now market cap is in the trillion number. And the general counsel of this company is a former divorce attorney. So the big picture here, there's, there's a bunch of different angles we can we can take here. And I want to c- cover a lot of them. But the big picture here is that Elon Musk is, if you look down the list of the richest people on the planet, he is pretty much uniquely the only one who really, really wants more money because he wants to spend more money. And he has ambitions of spending 
more money. Like he wanted a fifty billion dollar pay package, not because he wanted to be like richer than anyone else, or he, you know, it's the way of keeping score or anything else that you would normally attribute to billionaires, but because he's like, well, with fifty billion dollars, that's going to get me that much closer to interplanetary travel and colonizing Mars. Like he has these insanely expensive ambitions, and so this is why Elon Musk uniquely among the gazillionaires on, on the, 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 the world's richest list, uniquely among all of them, he is the only one who is constantly trying to get paid more. Colonizing Mars is an expensive endeavor, Judge Kathleen McCormick writes, but Musk believes he has a moral obligation to direct his wealth towards that goal. And she points out there's no other like CEO founder who's constantly trying to get more stock in his own company. Like she points, she points to Gates Zuckerberg as like they have a lot of stock already in the companies they founded and that's enough to keep them incentivized to keep working for the benefit of the company they're not asking for more which is what he did here he already had 22% of the outstanding shares in Tesla when he negotiated this new pay package which would have given him even more shares in Tesla and the argument was like well he needs to be incentivized to stick around and honestly, it's not a bad argument because the man has like six other jobs. So yeah, I mean, maybe he does need to be incentivized, no? Well, I mean, she she notes that he already has that incentive just based on how much of the stock he already owns. And also he said explicitly that he has no intention of leaving Tesla. So the the other thing is, you know, even if she, even if his stated reason for wanting this, you know, astronomical pay package is so that he can colonize Mars. I mean, who, who, if you're a shareholder, why do you give a fuck? Yes. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And, that, and that's her point, right? Like, it is, not, it is not necessarily in Tesla's best interest that Elon can travel to Mars or that Elon can send someone to Mars. But you're not thinking long-term, Felix, because if the world ends and we don't colonize Mars, then that's the end of Tesla, right? <laughs> but, but yeah, what, what Elon is basically saying is that unless I have this one in a million chance of being able to get to Mars, unless I have that to to aim for, I'm just not going to really be incentivized. I need to have like a reason to work. And the reason to work is not like I'm going to get richer because Tesla stock is going to go up because like that's not enough for me. I need to get so much more richer that I can make it to Mars. And so like, and so he just wants to get paid over and over and over again. And, um, and it's an astonishing it's it actually reminds me a little bit of Sam Bankman-Fried because Sam Bankman-Fried was also like I have this grand amazing goal to improve the planet in amazing ways and in order to do that those amazing things I just need to make a bunch of money in the present and that's kind of what Elon is doing with Tesla or the way he's presenting this to the board is he's saying like I have these grand goals and the way I can achieve those goals is to make a shit ton of money and so your job is to pay me a shit ton of money. Otherwise, I'm not going to be incentivized. But Sam Bankman-Fried was full of shit, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that's, I mean, my question in the back of my head is, does the, does the analogy extend towards Musk? Well, I mean, she makes a case that, you know, there are two considerations here, the process and the price. And she suggests that shareholders were being misled. So I don't think, you know, I don't think you can make the case that, what Elon was doing was equivalent to SBF in the sense that it, you know, fully intentionally misled people, but the omissions seem like they were 
you know, intentional or at the very least negligent. It was lies. She points out like... To, to be clear, shareholders were not misled about the price. They were only misled about the process. Yeah, the process. She she even calls them... Because over in the proxy, they say like the independent directors, da-da-da-da-da, the independent directors, da-da-da-da. And she's like, look, that's a lie. Like they weren't independent directors, like full stop. So they were lied to, the shareholders, you could argue. Although maybe they don't care. I don't know. I think well, this is an interesting question. Certainly Matt Levine seems to believe, and certainly Elon Musk seems to believe that they don't care, and that given their druthers, they would happily go back and give them the same pay, pay package all over again. But like when they approved the pay package, when they voted in favor of the pay package, and I remember this very vividly at the time, it was considered to be ludicrous. Like it was, no one believed that he would come even close to achieving the full level of pay because he wouldn't need to, you know, multiply the valuation of Tesla by a factor of 10. He would need to, you know, for every $10 billion he got paid, he'd need to basically increase the value of Tesla by more than Ford and GM combined. And like, no one thought this was possible. And for a couple of years after the pay package, the valuation of Tesla didn't go up. And everyone just thought, well, this is this batshit pay package. And it's, Big in theory, but in practice, it's never going to happen. Then it happened. And that is the reason why the lawsuit was was brought. But like, you don't see those kind of pay packages in other companies because most CEOs actually want to get paid for what they're doing. You know, Elon was like, only pay me on the 1% chance that I blow the lights out. No, I mean, in the in the decision, the judge says this. So there are the 12 tranches, right? He had to meet... To get a tranche of stock options, he had to meet certain targets. And apparently at the time the they pulled the pay package together back in 2018, there was pretty good certainty on the part of the Tesla executives and the board that they would definitely meet at least the first two goals. Um, and that was one of the ways in which McCormick said, you know, the shareholders had been misled was that the targets, at least the first two, were pretty much gonna happen. And they knew that. So, I mean, it was audacious. I feel like that's definitely correct. But like it was within, some of it was already within reach. So in any case, the, there, there are a couple of interesting questions now that the pay package has been rescinded. Well, there are so many interesting questions, but let's just concentrate on a couple. The first one is that the goals have been met. So they're no longer big, hairy, audacious goals with a very low probability of being met. They are 100% certain goals that like were met already in the past. So while it kind of made sense to incentivize Elon Musk to hit those crazy goals ex-ante, it can't possibly make sense to incent- to like just pay him $50 billion for having hit those goals ex-post because he's already hit them. And if you don't pay him the money, he will still already have hit them. Yeah, I don't understand what they're going to do. I think the board now has to come back to the court and be like, this is the process we're going to use to come up with his pay. And here's why it's independent and arm's length. And and of course, they'll appeal also. So, I mean, do you have a sense for what's going to happen next? So, so the immediate thing that's going to happen next is that Elon and Tesla are going to appeal to the Delaware Supreme Court and the Delaware Supreme Court is going to uphold McCormick's decision. So that's the first thing. We know that's what. And and then what happens after that, if you believe what Elon has been tweeting, is that Elon is going to hold a shareholder vote on reincorporating Tesla in Texas because he thinks that Texas is friendlier on such matters than Delaware. And then probably once, I think in his mind, once it's reincorporated in Tesla, they will 
put through some, you know, a third monster pay package and the Texas courts will be fine with it. I am highly skeptical that Tesla will actually reincorporate in Texas. Why? Twitter did it. He did it for Twitter, right? He moved out of Delaware to Texas. Right. Elon can do whatever the fuck he likes with his private companies, right? His private companies are his private companies and he has complete control over them and there's no pesky courts anywhere who can interfere. He only has one public company and that's Tesla. And because it's a public company and because the officers and directors have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders and all the rest of it, he has much less freedom in terms of doing something like up and moving to Texas. If he tried to move to Texas, it would be obviously in an attempt to do an end run around this ruling. And obviously, there would be a shareholder objection to it. And obviously, that shareholder objection would be upheld by Delaware courts, because they're like, no, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. You don't just take your toys and go home to Texas if you don't like what we say. Yeah, and then he would be breaching his own fiduciary duties. He could take the company private. $420 a share. It says a lot about Elon Musk that a court ruled this week that his pay has to be rescinded, taken back, like he it's voided. That's a huge, insane thing to happen. And and from what I understand, it's never happened in the Delaware court before that they said to a board, like, we disagree and we're we're not going to give you the latitude to pay a CEO what you want to pay. Like that's like the height of business discretion to determine how much you pay a CEO. And I think this was the first time that they ever were like, no, you did this all wrong. This is bad. And that's like a really big blow to this guy. And yet he has managed to change the conversation to be about like the Delaware court itself and you know, and the and the viability of Texas. Not to bring up the T word, but it's very Trumpy, you know, to change the conversation that much to where everyone is taking that part of it so seriously, and that's what the stories are about. And the stories aren't like, "Yo, how is this guy going to get paid?" Like <laughs> the court took his pay away. You know what I mean? I mean, like he's down to his last hundred and fifty billion. <laughs> is he going to be all right? <laughs> <laughs> And to Felix's point, if if they had just disclosed all the stuff in the proxy statement, he'd probably get to keep the package. Yep. But, you know, this is a rhetorical move he uses all the time. You know, he'll cast himself as the victim if there's a decision that doesn't go his way. It works. So this just feels like more of the same. Yeah. I mean, his, his fanboys buy it. So. But I'm saying even the business press buys it. Like the stories about, you know, Delaware, is, is it losing yeah, I think that's a function, though. I, I've seen all these stories this morning about companies moving to Texas, and it's just absurd. And I, I think it it's a function of a certain swath of the business press not understanding why companies incorporate in Delaware in the first place, or what the advantages are, or why particularly if you're a public company, you want to be there. No, I, I, I do think that the, the grand Texas dream of replacing tel- Delaware as the, you know, incorporation state of choice is 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 even less likely than Elon hitting his targets. But I am also interested in this question of, um, you know, Elon already, before this ruling came down, was like, I want to have 25% voting control of Tesla, otherwise I am not going to use Tesla as my AI vehicle, and that's, you know, going to hurt Tesla. At what point do Tesla's institutional shareholders, who are the majority of Tesla's shareholders, like, at what point do they kind of say, look, Elon, you've done a great job. You've made Tesla into this global force. You know, you've given it this trillion dollar market cap. But frankly, maybe 
from here on in, it might be better run by someone else. Well, that's the, I think that was part of the motivation of the guy who initiated the lawsuit, who only had nine shares of Tesla when he initiated it. I I think as long as the stock stays pretty high, like that's just, I can't imagine that happening. Like Elon Musk is Tesla. I mean, I guess there's precedent. It happens that the, the founder CEO gets kicked out because he's just too reckless. Oh, I don't think he'll get kicked out. I th- I, th- I just think that like, you know, he will he will say, well, if I don't get 25%, I'm, I'm going to spend all my time on XAI and X and SpaceX and all of his other, you know, Neuralink. And he'll just kind of, quiet quit. I mean, I feel like everyone would be happy about that. You did see some quotes when he was threatening to leave Delaware with Delaware insiders being like, honestly, that'd be great. This guy takes up all of our resources (laughs) and time. Like, it's like something like maybe that would be good for Tesla in the end. For all of us regular people who negotiate our pay, you know, in our real jobs, I just, I can't stop thinking about how hard it is to negotiate like a 5% pay raise when Elon Musk gets to have 12 tranches that equal $56 billion. But I'll move on. We're supposed to be talking about 2023 and me. Move on. Move on. After this, <laughs> we'll have more billionaires. So also, if you don't want to hear ads right now and who does, and you want to have access to a bunch of great Slate stuff, you should sign up for Slate Plus because... With Slate Plus, you get ad-free listening on all the Slate podcasts, not just money, but all the other good ones, including What Next TBD, where I host occasionally, plus unlimited access to all Slate.com content, and there's a newsletter for members only, and, and there's more. There's an exclusive bonus segment at the end of this episode. In today's episode, we're talking about the demise of The Messenger, another digital media startup that has gone Bust. We consider whether it's part of a bigger trend or was it specifically a very bad idea. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Anne Wojcicki, another visionary billionaire CEO, took her company, 23andMe, public via SPAC during the SPAC boom, For a hot minute there, it was worth $6 billion, and now it isn't. Why is this interesting? And then everyone who's anyone helped fund her. There were all these parties where she was showing up and getting money. Of course, Rupert Murdoch was there at some point. Um, She raised all this cash for this dream of 23andMe. We're going to analyze people's DNA. We're going to be a healthcare company. It was all like that tech hype that we're so, so used to. And, you know, we're going to revolutionize healthcare and all of this. And in the end, it all comes kind of crashing down. Interest rates go up. No one wants to buy 23andMe, you know, health assessments. Not that many people need to do this or have like disease lurking in their their genetic code that they need to be diagnosed. Um, And in the end, the company kind of falls apart. It's not like an Elizabeth Holmes kind of a story, but it's not not like an Elizabeth Holmes kind of story to my mind. Well, it's it's I, th- I think it's a very different situation because there there are two things that happened with 
them. You know, the, the company was started in 2005, and I think there was a lot of interest around it initially because she had been an, a healthcare analyst for a long time. She was in a relationship with Sergey Brin. He was an investor, and there was an idea that you know this is essentially a data company, and maybe relationship with Google would pay off. But the original, I think, vision for it was that you could do all of these things with people's genetic data, and there would be an opportunity for things like drug development longer term. But when they launched in you know the mid aughts, they ended up having to roll back a lot of the the tests that they were offering that would be considered diagnostic tests tests, and they had to pull the product for two years because the FDA didn't clear it. And I think that was a big wrench in the in the works for them. And then another factor was just you know if you've taken one of these DNA tests before, and I've taken both twenty three me and ancestry because I was adopted and I was looking for relatives. You know, you generally go into a DNA test looking for a specific piece of information. It might be your ethnicity. It might be you might be trying to find relatives, or you know, you have a hunch that you have uh, the BRCA gene or an Alzheimer's gene, and you want to know that. But those are three totally different use cases, and I think they really overestimated the extent to which people were going to use it for recreational things, like you, you know, finding out whether you have the gene that makes you, you know, your urine smell after you eat asparagus. It's like, well. <laughs> I mean, does anybody care about that that much? And you can buy upgrades, but they don't offer that much. Yeah, and it's it's a one-off thing. Like basically, at this point, anyone who's going to twenty-three and Me to like find out that they're you know fourteen percent Ashkenazi Jew or whatever, like those people have done it already. Like that's that income stream has kind of trickled away, and yeah, now I think what they want to be is Grail, right? Grail, of course, is the gene sequencing company that was spun off from Illumina. And then Illumina bought it back, and then there was a big antitrust case, and then they divested it again. But Grail is this thing where they'll, like, you know, do a gene test and tell you all of the diseases that you're likely to get. And they've managed to do it in a way that, like, 23andMe has only really talked about doing it and hasn't been able to get there. 23andMe, meanwhile, has been like, um, we have this incredible data set of everyone who's given us their dna and we can use that data to develop drugs and it's like yeah you can how's that going and it turns out that yeah no not really it doesn't actually help nearly as much as they thought it would it's a 10-year product cycle to do that and and also you know we don't know what the market for targeted therapeutics is right now because a lot of insurance companies won't pay for it (laughs) so it's it's hard to really gauge and and if, if they keep going at the rate that they do, they're going to run out of money by 2025. So they're they're not in a good place right now. Did it also seem like reading the Wall Street Journal piece on this that they were just too, they acted, I feel like this, this does happen. And this is why the, I made the Elizabeth Holmes comparison. There's a difference between a tech startup and um, a health startup, a healthcare startup. And, you know, the healthcare business is a tough one. It's heavily regulated. You know, you can't just release something and cross your fingers and like fix it the next time, wait for the bugs to show up. It's, you have to be really careful and cautious and you can't go crazy. And if this company wanted to be a healthcare company, it really operated more like a tech startup. If you're like trying to build something, a healthcare company on like this long shot of genetic data, like you're obviously going to need a lot of runway and like you probably should be more conservative with your capital. I can't believe I just said that. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, stick with rich people things for the time being and talk about Sotheby's, which is a place where rich people go to buy and sell art and other collectibles. Going once, going twice. 
sold to Felix, who will tell you about this story. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Sotheby's has been in the news recently because it was being dragged through the courts by a Russian oligarch who claimed that they were doing something unspeakable. And of course they weren't, and he lost. And then on Thursday, they came out with this amazing press release about their schedule of fees basically and this got so much less press than the oligarch stuff and i'm like i mean i guess i can see it because you don't you don't have oligarchs involved but this is a much much bigger deal because auctions are definitely the most transparent part of the art world but they're also pretty opaque and what sotheby's did this week was make them much more transparent, make their fees much more transparent. They took this thing that had only ever just been whispered about and they'd never acknowledged called Enhanced Hammer. And they were like, yeah, we're bringing it out into the sunshine and we're going to give it to anyone selling a $20 million piece. And this is a, they're basically, not to put too fine a point on it, really slashing their fees compared to where they were. And clearly this is an attempt to gain market share from Christie's and, you know, become the big dominant um because they've been like the number two for a long time they they want to be number one and i i find this just fascinating can you explain what an enhanced hammer is because it sounds like an icbm northrop would make. <laughs> so when a painting or other collectible comes up to auction you've all seen the videos and it's been in all the movies you know there's a bidding in the room and someone bids two million someone bids three million someone bids four million And those bids are what's known as the hammer price. And the hammer price is not the amount that the buyer pays. The amount that the buyer pays is the hammer price plus something called the buyer's premium. And the buyer's premium is this very complicated thing or hereunto complicated thing, which is like 26% on the first million dollars and then 20% on the next $4 million and then you know 13.9% on the next above that and then plus you add a 1% fee and you know, it gets very complicated. But the point is that the sale price is much higher than the hammer price. So then the seller is like, how much of this am I going to get? How much of this sale is going to come to me? Historically, the auction houses for most things have been like, well, you get 90% of the hammer price. And the sellers, especially if they're like big, important sellers with negotiating clout, they're like, wait, you want me to get less than the hammer price? And then you're also so you're I'm paying you money out of the hammer price and then also you're making a massive buyer's premium on top of that what the fuck so if you are a very big and powerful seller then what you can do is you can negotiate something called enhanced hammer where the amount you get paid as a seller is actually more than the hammer price so it's kind of 
in between the hammer price and the sale price. So I was trying to like make this make sense in my head. So if you go to an auction and you bid on something for $100, sold to Emily Peck for $100, then I don't pay $100 for the thing, whatever it is, snow globe, say, because I like them. I pay like $120 to Sotheby's for the snow globe. And then the, the person who sold the snow globe to me only gets $90. So Sotheby's gets $30 for the snow globe. Right. That's crazy. Or maybe it's not crazy, but it seems like a good deal for Sotheby's. No, that that's exactly it. And so now what Sotheby's is doing is they're making this um, more attractive to buyers because the premiums are coming down, more attractive to sellers because the amount they pay is coming down a lot. It's basically capped at $50,000 and it can go negative, you know, if it's if it's big enough. They have imp- in implemented this mildly annoying thing called the success fee, where if the piece goes for above its high estimate, then they also charge you a 2% success fee for blowing through the high estimate. I'm like, did you need to? Really? <laughs> Was that really necessary? But other than that, it does seem to be very sort of collector-friendly, but on both the, the buyer and the seller side. What do we make of the meaning of this? What should, outside of the people who care about the auction world, what does this say about fees and transparency. Is this part of the Biden administration's effort to crack down on junk fees? (laughs) One can, but I I think the Biden administration has, is not too worried about the people, you know, bidding a hundred million dollars at auction on the painting, but it is in line with that. I think, I think what it says to me is that Sotheby's, you know, was a public company for many, many years before it was bought by Patrick Drahi. And now under Drahi, like there was a, there was like questions like he he came in and did a lot of cost cutting and it looked like he was kind of making it smaller but now it looks like he's really trying to invest by cutting his prices and trying to invest in growth and market share and he's like now now I've done the cost cutting maybe he has room to to try and he reckons he has, he has room to afford this and to try and really compete with Christie's so that's going to be super interesting i think a lot of it is just French billionaire versus French billionaire, right? So Sotheby's is run by Patrick Drahi. Um, Christie's is run by Francois Pinault. And now they get to sort of do a dick measuring contest in terms of whose auction house is bigger. I wanted to ask you also, because the last time when we talked about philanthropy, I got to ask you like, Felix, why do you care about philanthropy? And you had a really good answer. And people should go and listen back to that episode if they they don't remember. So now I want to ask you really seriously, like, why are you so interested in the auction world? Is this where I get to plug my interview on Tuesday with Bianca Bosca? <laughs> sure. So on Money Talks on Tuesday, we have Bianca Bosca coming on. She has an amazing new book um, called Get the Picture, all about the art world and about how to look at art and think about art. And there is a sort of through line there about like the, the, the financial value of art, how much it sells for, how much artists get paid, how much they make why it can be problematic when they start selling work at auction for large amounts of money, this kind of thing. And I think it's important that people remember that art is made by human beings who need to pay rent and feed themselves. And there is so much money sloshing around the art world at the heights of the you know auction house thing where rich people are buying and selling paintings to each other. And almost none of that goes to artists except for in a very 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 indirect way and so that sort of disconnect 
between the large number of artists making nothing and the huge amounts of money sloshing around between collectors you know, buying and selling works by people who've been dead for centuries. That really fascinates me. Yeah, so is this a good thing, these Sotheby's reducing its fees? Is that a good thing for those artists that aren't making much money? Or is it sort of just like a win for the people who are buying and selling their work? Honestly, I mean, that's a really good question. Like, there's a case to be made that it could be bad for the artists. Because if insofar as this makes the secondary market more attractive to art collectors, maybe it's going to draw them away from the primary market and buying paintings directly from artists. Do you think it encourages more speculation? Yeah. I mean, the amount of speculation always goes up as transaction costs go down, right? The more liquid a market is, the more it lends itself to speculation. So lower fees means more liquidity, means more speculation, for sure. But we should have a numbers round. Emily, what what is your number? 30%. That is the share of Americans who made a New Year's resolution this year, 2024, And it's from a survey from Pew. And I thought it was kind of interesting because, you know, Pew looked at kind of demographic differences between people when it comes to making resolutions. And unlike most things, there was no partisan divide, right? Democrats and Republicans make their New Year's resolutions pretty much at the same rates. Um, There was no racial divide. There was no gender divide. But there was a generational divide. Younger Americans... 49% are making resolutions. These are people from 18 to 29. For those over 65, 18%. They're like, no, we're not doing this again. We're not going through this again with the resolutions. So the the older we get, we just give up. (laughs) Yeah, we just (laughs) give up. Well, or we know that we're going to not follow through on the resolutions. I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. If you have thoughts, feel free to write in, slatemoneyatslate.com. Yeah, and oh, and P.S., by January, when Hugh did this late January, 13% of people had kept none of their resolutions, 28% had kept some of them, and shockingly, 60%, according to this, had kept all of their resolutions. Did those numbers pencil out? I hope so. 60% all of their resolutions. Did you guys make resolutions? When did you When did you give up coffee? That wasn't a New Year's thing, Oh, was yeah. It? That was last... February or March, I think. And I, I really haven't drank coffee. I think I had a sip of it last week, but that was it. Does that count? No, it doesn't that count. I counts. gave it up. It's over. You gave it up. You, you no longer drink coffee. Well done. Thank you. Elizabeth, what's your number? My number is 3.2, and that's in millimeters. And that is the height that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration needs your display fonts to be on your car so that if, if it warns you about braking issues... So Tesla is having to issue a recall right now because their font sizes are smaller. And of course, uh, Elon refers to the NHTSA as the no fun police. But in this case, it seems like they're more the the let's not crash your car, please. Because if you can't see the brake warning, that could be problematic. But this is just a matter of issuing a software update. 3.2 millimeters? That's like invisible. Yeah. Well, especially I just bought reading glasses for the first time this year. And I feel like I, I just like even thinking about that gives me anxiety. <laughs> like there is no way that no anyone is going to be reading anything on a car display screen that is in 3.2. Is that the height of the letter? Yep. Could you tell me in English what that means in American? I don't I don't speak millimeters. It's like the it's a, think of it like tiny font size. It's like an eighth of an inch. What? They need to make it bigger than that. 
If your brakes aren't working on your car? I would think since it's all screen-based, why can't they just allow you to adjust the sizes or, you know, different UX for different people? Ugh, I don't want to think about UX and adjusting fonts in my car. <laughs> sounds awful. Also, I don't want to do software updates on my car. I, I'm feeling very cranky right now. Felix, do you have a number? My my number is 30 billion, which is the number of dollars that Byron Allen has purportedly offered to buy Paramount. And this is like a wonderful little media stupidity story. Byron Allen is this kind of self-described media mogul who has bought a few like TV stations and TV assets over the years. Um, the biggest thing he ever bought was the Weather Channel, which he paid $300 million for. But then ever since then, he's been making ever bigger bids for all manner of things, like, you know, $2 billion for this and $3 billion for that and $8 billion for this. And now he's trying to buy Paramount for $30 billion, including that. And like, everyone knows that he doesn't have the money, right? It's It's just like he's become this kind of punchline of like, why are you making all these bids? But he is kind of a media mogul and he does actually have a real company. And so the market gets really confused and the stock price of Paramount like goes up when he makes these bids because people feel like they can't just ignore him completely, even though they know it's never going to happen. Elon could have bought it with his voided pay package. <laughs> well, he, he could have done, but like he bought Twitter instead. You know what really annoys me too? Like, yeah, he supposedly he needs this money to go to Mars, but we all know he took like billions and billions and bought Twitter with it. That wasn't a Mars bet. That was a wacky bet that is un- making me very unhappy. He didn't use that money. Anyway. I'm, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. It's I okay. Mean, I, I too. I too am unhappy. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if I am, to be honest. Because because Elon buying Twitter was the thing that finally drove me off Twitter. That's true. Same. And now I'm off Twitter. And being off Twitter, it makes me happy. That's a good so thing. So maybe, maybe it was a good thing. Well, thank you, Elon Musk. You have made humanity better. Or one human, at least. <laughs> okay, I think that's it for us this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for emailing us, slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks to Shana Roth and Jared Downing and Ben Richmond for producing. And we will be back on Tuesday with Bianca Bosca on Money Talks. 